Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zaid Wahab, and today we're going to discuss the brief and confused reign of Al-Hadi, fourth of the Abbasid Caliphs. He and his brother Harun al-Rashid had both been named by their father Al-Mahdi as his successors, in that order. While we'll try to keep the spotlight on Al-Hadi, he'll still have to share it with Al-Rashid and a few other leading men, all of whom feature prominently in this disputed time for the Caliphate. It'll be a bumpy and bewildering ride, but the turbulence won't last very long. Episode 49, Al-Hadi I'd like to open by reiterating my warning. We'll come across plenty of new faces today, many of whom will go on to play an important part in the Caliphate's future. I'll be brief with any minor figures and make sure to underscore the ones you need to keep in mind. And as always, there will be a handy glossary on the show's website if you need it. I haven't plugged it in a while, so here goes. You can visit thecaliphs.com to find associated material for every episode. Usually just a glossary, but sometimes I'll put maps and graphs up there too. There are good reasons why we hear about so many influential men during Al-Hadi's reign. While his grandfather, Al-Mansur, had dominated the caliphate, bureaucrats and personal secretaries became increasingly important during his father Al-Mahdi's time. Since I see no way of discussing Al-Hadi without bringing up his brother Harun al-Rashid, we'll have to meet both their retinues. Finally, Al-Hadi's death at a young age was controversial, and many of the powerful figures around him come up in narrations on the topic. All that said, let's get started with his early years, so we can begin the Caliph's reign with some more background on him, his brother, and the prominent men who surrounded them. Musa al-Hadi and Harun al-Rashid were both born in Rai, the first in 764, the other in 766. By then, their father, Muhammad al-Mahdi, was already vice-regent of the East and next in line for the throne, and their mother, al-Khaizuran, was his favorite wife, an auspicious start by any measure. Al-Mahdi proceeded to become caliph in 775, and within a couple years he installed Al-Hadi as his successor at the tender age of 13. We have very little on Al-Mahdi or his family before this, and even after his ascension, it's the caliph himself whom our narrations focus on, and as always, they allied women and children entirely. Still though, we do have a few important bits of information to relay, and they'll require you to commit a couple new names to memory. You probably recall how Al-Mahdi relied almost entirely on his advisors to do his bidding, and more than that, to make decisions for him when necessary. Well, having proficient counselors seems to have been a benefit he thought his children should avail themselves of, and he assigned each of his sons a capable mentor to guide him. 
Al-Hadi got Ali ibn Isa ibn Mahan, and Al-Rashid was practically raised by Yahya ibn Khalid al-Barmaki. Both names will be very significant to our narrative going forward, so it's worth paying extra hard attention whenever I bring them up, especially Yahya. Since this is Al-Hadi's episode, we'll start with his mentor, slash advisor, slash confidant, Ali ibn Isa ibn Mahan. Ali's father, Isa ibn Mahan, had been one of the preachers of the da'wah in Khurasan, back when the Abbasid project was still a secret calling, before the revolution. He rebelled against the Abbasids for some unknown reason, however, and was swiftly dealt with by the all-powerful governor of the province, Abu Muslim. His son, Ali, remained faithful to the new dynasty, and after serving with their armies, he became the head of al-Mahdi's personal guard, who eventually assigned him to be his son's mentor and protector. Many aspects of al-Hadi's upbringing and reign are murky and difficult to make out with much confidence, but at least according to some narrations, his father made him head of the Abbasid armies in 780, when he was only 16 years old. If that's true, then the choice of the Marshal Ibn Mahan was a fitting one, as there were few with more military credibility than this leader among the Abna. Just a reminder for anyone who needs it, the Khurasaniya had been settled near the capital by Al-Mansur, and since then they had come to be known as Abna al-Dawla, or sons of the state. Ibn Mahan numbered among their leaders before being assigned to the caliph's personal guard. Al-Rashid's mentor was Yahya ibn Khalid al-Barmaki, and although we'll have plenty to say about both him and Ibn Mahan, Yahya's family, the Baramika, will get far more attention as they end up playing a momentous role in the caliphate's future administration. We'll get to them in due course, probably next time actually, but don't hold me to it. For now, all you need to know is that Yahya al-Barmaki was practically a father figure to the young Harun. Even before al-Mahdi came to power, he and Yahya had been exceptionally close. Perhaps even more crucially, al-Khayzuran took a strong liking to the Baramika. Multiple sources say that Yahya and al-Mahdi's families were so close that al-Khayzuran had nursed one of Yahya's babies, and Yahya's wife had nursed Harun al-Rashid, since the two were born only seven days apart. Unlike Ibn Mahan, Yahya's background wasn't strictly military, Although he had held command before, he was better known as an administrator. Al-Mansur had appointed him governor of Azerbaijan towards the end of his reign, a position in which Yahya seemed to have exceeded expectations. The boys needed these accomplished men by their sides because their father, like his father before him, had big plans for them. Plans better suited for hardened leaders than boys. When Al-Mahdi made Al-Hadi head of the armies, he also made him vice-regent of the East, an arrangement he lifted as is from his father's playbook. Then, after Harun came back from his victorious campaign against the Byzantines, al-Mahdi got real creative and appointed the younger son vice-regent of the West. Azerbaijan, Armenia, and all the lands west of Anbar were thereafter nominally under his control. It's pretty apparent that the creation of these hollow positions was al-Mahdi's way of preparing his sons for the royal duties that lay ahead of them. Ibn Mahan was a great choice for building a strong relationship between al-Hadi and the Abna, 
while Yahya had not only helped al-Rashid pull off his incredible victory against the Byzantines, but he was also a gifted administrator and a close friend of the family. The relationships these advisors forged with the royal heirs during their formative years left some strong impressions, and it'll become clear how al-Hadi and al-Rashid's instincts and temperaments were molded by their closeness to their respective mentors. In the summer of 785, al-Hadi and Ibn Mahan were on a campaign against the Zanadiqa, the heretics the caliph loved to persecute, all the way in Jurjan, on the southeastern shores of the Caspian Sea. Al-Rashid had meanwhile accompanied al-Mahdi to Masabadan on one of his luxurious hunting trips, the one that would sadly prove to be his last. We're told the caliph's hajib, al-Rabi'a bin Yunus, was the one who informed al-Rashid about his father's sudden passing, and after dispatching a messenger to al-Hadi in Jurjan, the hunting party rode back to the city of peace. As with most junctures in this short reign, there's a little confusion as to what exactly happened after that. Some narrations say that pledges were taken for al-Hadi soon after, while others say that al-Khaizuran ordered the caliph's death be kept secret until her son had returned from Jurjan. There are even some confusing reports about having to pay the soldiers a sum from the treasury to keep them from rioting, and although there are quite a few of those narrations, I really can't make heads or tails of them. Paying troops during a transition is always a good idea, but I don't see why they'd mutiny. Perhaps these accounts were just meant to convey an exaggerated sense of how bereaved the army was at the sudden loss of its beloved al-Mahdi. It took a little over a week for al-Hadi to hear about his father's death, after which he wrapped up his persecution of the people of Turjan and made his way back to the capital. Everything about his reign is contested. Some accounts say he took his sweet time getting back and then spent his first day and night with this woman he had a think for instead of receiving pledges at the mosque. Others say he was in such a hurry to return that he became the first caliph to ride the horses meant for delivering mail. It's a trifling point to quibble about, and his time in charge is full of them, so I hope you'll forgive me if I just ignore some of the smaller, less substantive disputes so we can keep things moving. While we're on the subject of how Al-Hadi's time in charge is covered in our sources, let me add that the chronology is difficult to establish, because all we find are a handful of narrations about different themes. I guess that doesn't sound too different from what we usually get, but the reign is so short and contested that it becomes hard to draw any kind of progression. But anyway, now that Al-Hadi has become our latest caliph at the young age of 21, I wanted to share some descriptions of him found in our sources. We are told that he was brave, chivalrous, cruel, educated, feared, generous, popular, stubborn, well-spoken, and wrathful. It's a jumbled mix of adjectives, but the overall picture we get is of a severe young man who was self-confident, outgoing, and at great ease with violence. We're told he liked to keep his sword in hand and unsheathed, a practice other governors and commanders began to emulate after he came to power. He is also said to have been the first Abbasid caliph who indulged in wine, though I personally suspect that his father's flouting of the Muslim prohibition on alcohol was overlooked because of his strong reputation for piety. 
whatever the case may be, Al-Hadi seems to have been unabashed about his drinking, and our sources don't look away from it either. These impressions of Al-Hadi all make sense considering his age and martial upbringing, and they should help us understand his reign a little better. So let's get started with this reign then. It's hard to tell what Al-Hadi did first. Al-Tabari says he busied himself with a crackdown on some Zanadiqa, while Al-Yaqubi says he put his uncle, Al-Khayzuran's brother, the governor of Yemen, in charge of Khurasan, leading to chaos in both provinces. Others still say he started by oppressing the Hashemites, rescinding the pensions they received from the state during his father's time, even going so far as to accuse their partisans of heresy and chasing them down. I'm pulling on multiple threads at once, because there's probably some truth to each. There was unrest in distant parts of the caliphate for different reasons, and Al-Hadi did like to persecute people, so that's probably what he actually did. I don't think he made his uncle governor of Khurasan, but I mentioned Al-Yaqubi's version because we come across many narrations similar to it in tone, ones that zoom in on Al-Khayzuran and her resurgent influence within the state. Most accounts agree that Al-Khayzuran wielded great power at the outset of her son's reign. There are stories about ministers coming to her for orders, and her messengers going to every government office to deliver her instructions. This only lasted about four months, and Al-Mas'udi quotes a long and dramatic monologue in which the young caliph exploded at his mother. He told her that if he ever caught anyone outside her door again, he was going to have them killed and dispossessed, that she ought to be knitting, reading the Qur'an or housekeeping, and that she had better never open her mouth to a free man from then on out. To squeeze in a little more drama, Al-Mas'udi adds that Al-Khayzuran was speechless, first by surprise and then by choice, and that she never spoke to her son again. There's a different version in which Al-Hadi berates his ministers instead, but it's less fun and you get the point. No more clout for Al-Khayzuran. Like I said earlier, I don't think the caliph promoted his uncle from governor of Yemen to governor of Khurasan, but there seems to have been some disarray in both provinces, as well as in Egypt. I believe that these provincial rebellions and the persecution of the Hashemites had begun towards the end of his father's reign, but Al-Hadi is the one who gets the bad reputation for both. In his last three years in charge, after he had imprisoned his vaguely pro-Hashemite advisor Yaqub ibn Dawud, Al-Mahdi began insisting that the Prophet himself had designated the Abbasids as his inheritors, angering and alienating many from his clan. That's not to say that Al-Hadi didn't contribute. The young caliph had a terrible relationship with his kin, and he saw no reason to keep them close to the state by having them on the dole. This obviously led to renewed friction between the Hashemites and the Abbasids, and after less than ten months in charge, Al-Hadi had a Hashemite rebellion on his hands, albeit a small one. It seems like his governor of Medina had excessively punished relatives of the much-admired Muhammad the Pure Soul, having them publicly whipped and dragged around the marketplace in chains after finding some alcohol on one of them. Shortly after that episode, a nephew of the Pure Soul named Hussein seized the mosque's pulpit, and a few hundred supporters of his pledged their allegiance to him. 
I should note that the label Hashemite isn't exactly accurate, as many of Hussein's clansmen did not support his movement. Musa al-Kazim, son of Ja'far al-Sadiq, the leader of the clan's only other branch to directly descend from the Prophet, stuck to the apolitical example of his ancestors. He kept his supporters out of it and warned Hussein that his actions would only lead to his death. I'll stick to the term Hashemite because it's the one we've used thus far, but our sources prefer to use Alawi, Talibi, Hassani, or Zaydi. Hussein's public reception of pledges led to a fight with the local Abbasid garrison, one that lasted about 11 days and had the Hashemites trapped in the Prophet's mosque. Unable to take the city and increasingly desperate, the 300 or so left in secret and made for Mecca. They were confronted by three Abbasid commanders at a place ominously named Wadi al-Fakh, or Trap Valley, where most of the rebels were killed with ease. Numbers-wise, this was the second biggest Hashemite massacre after Al-Hussein's dark day at Karbala. There were survivors this time around, however, and two of them would go on to cause trouble for the caliphate. One went north to Daylam by Tabaristan on the Caspian coast and proceeded to convert many of the natives to his cause. The other went all the way west to Morocco, where he similarly established local control and started his own Hashemite dynasty. Obviously, we'll have to discuss both men in more detail, but we can leave that for when they barge into the Abbasid spotlight down the line. For now, let's say a bit more about the commanders who stopped them at Wadi al-Fakh. There were three of them, but since we already have too many names in our episode, we'll just focus on the pair who matter. The first was Muhammad ibn Sulaiman, the cousin of al-Mansur's, who had replaced Isa ibn Musa as governor of Kufa back in 763. Since then, he'd been promoted a few times, and he was probably governor of Basra at the time of this uprising. He had taken hundreds of guards with him on his pilgrimage as a defense against Bedouin raiders, revealing that even the ruling clan was not safe from desert bandits. This may imply that already at this early stage, there were plenty of disenfranchised Arab tribes who wanted nothing to do with the caliphate and preferred to lead a nomadic life instead. But to get back to Muhammad ibn Sulaiman, his large entourage served as the bulk of the Abbasid forces against Hussein's ragtag group. When their defeat was apparent, some of the Hashemites surrendered to him, including the son and brother of the martyred pure soul. Muhammad ibn Sulaiman accepted and promised them safety, but the other commander, Musa ibn Isa, son of Isa ibn Musa, had them both put to death. When the Abbasids returned to the caliph, al-Hadi was furious with Musa for his behavior and the caliph had him dispossessed of all his assets. Muhammad ibn Sulaiman, on the other hand, was rewarded handsomely for his service. We'll have more to say about both these Abbasids in future episodes, so don't forget about them just yet. There's one more prominent theme in al-Hadi's reign, and there is so much material on it that it almost dominates the caliph's whole time in charge. It seems that at some point in his first year in power, al-Hadi decided to reshape the caliphate's succession plans, seeking to remove his brother Harun al-Rashid and install his son Ja'far, who was only seven years old. 
They get younger every time, don't they? This is probably the most contentious part of Al-Hadi's reign, and there are so many divergent narrations that I hope you won't mind if I skip most of the controversy and only stop to comment on the most important variations as we go through what I believe took place. Let me start by saying that no matter how inexperienced, reckless, or drunk with power Al-Hadi may have been, trying to install a seven-year-old was a dumb idea. Beyond having Al-Rashid step down and renounce his claim, he had to get the governor of every province to go out in public and promise to pledge to a child, a ludicrous non-starter. There was no way of sealing the deal any further either, as the Arabs believed you could not pledge yourself to more than one person at a time, so a promise to pledge oneself was the best that could be extracted while Al-Hadi was still around. The whole idea was so ridiculous that I think there was more to it than the common and understandable desire a caliph had for his progeny to succeed him. Instead, I find narrations which stress the role of Al-Hadi's advisors in this matter to be the most realistic. After all, they were the ones with the most to lose if Al-Rashid were to become caliph, since he already had his own retinue. Similarly, they had the most to gain if Al-Hadi's young son were to be designated next in line, as that would ensure their continued influence over administration. Al-Hadi had two main advisors at this point, his mentor Ibn Mahan and his new hajib Fadl ibn Rabi'a, son of Rabi'a bin Yunus, who had passed away a few months after Al-Mahdi. Both these men harbored grudges against Al-Rashid's close confidant, Yahya ibn Khalid al-Barmaki. We find various explanations for these hard feelings across multiple narrations, but the most obvious one is professional. Ultimately, these men were all in competition for power, and the pair found themselves opposed to Yahya. This will have to do for now, but since all these men will stay with us, we will probably have more to say on the subject later. Whenever this push to get Al-Hadi's son recognized as heir began, it quickly led to Al-Rashid being ostracized entirely. We find a few accounts describing how even courtly servants would no longer return his greetings. They realized there were sides in this conflict, and they couldn't afford to be seen as going against the caliph. The tension was palpable, and some narrations say that Al-Rashid contemplated relinquishing his position as next in line, something he discussed with Yahya. The advice he received varies slightly in different narrations, but it was always supportive. Yahya either implored him to hold on to his status as heir apparent, or suggested he skip town to escape being forced to give up what was rightfully his. All the dialogues we find between Al-Hadi and Al-Rashid strike me as spurious, so I won't waste your time with them. Al-Rashid would not relent, and ultimately, Al-Hadi came to blame Yahya al-Barmaki for his brother's intransigence. There's a narration about the night the caliph had Yahya summoned to the palace for a word in private. Yahya thought his end was at hand. He said goodbye to his family and put on the clothes he wished to die in. The conversation he had with the caliph centered around succession, obviously, and when asked why he was getting in the way, Yahya replied that it was not for a love of power, but that there was no wisdom in having a seven-year-old Jafar be the only successor. 
He made a good point about how removing the incumbent in this manner would only encourage the ummah to think of the official succession casually, lowering the odds of a smooth transition of power. He recommended that Al-Hadi instead install Jafar as second in line, and then have Al-Rashid step down when Jafar came of age. It was a sensible compromise, but it was never adopted. Instead, we soon hear that Yahya was arrested and thrown into the caliph's dungeons. Things get a little messier after this, and it's hard to tell with much certainty where anybody was. Most narrations say Al-Rashid had taken Yahya's advice and had left Iraq for the safety of other lands, while some say he was still in the capital, being threatened with death if he did not accede to his brother's demands soon. The caliph was either outside Mosul, where he was making a new court for himself, or east of Baghdad, in a sumptuous palace his father had built at enormous expense. Either way, in early September 786, Al-Hadi fell sick, and he passed away within a week, at the young age of 22. Our sources predictably go haywire with speculation, and I would skip over all of it, except I feel I'd be cutting you short if I didn't mention the most widespread of the rumors and try to dispel them for you. They disagree on the how and the why, but there's a slew of narrations all accusing Al-Khaizuran of having her own son killed. Let's start with the why. Some accounts try to convince us of this maternal plot by saying that Al-Hadi himself had tried to have his mother assassinated a few months back. They claim he had sent Al-Khaizuran a dish of rice and meat, telling her it was too delicious to miss out on. It must have been sketchy, because she ordered her servants to try it out on the dog, and it dropped dead pretty much immediately. The next time the caliph saw his mother, he asked her if she had sampled the food he'd sent her, and when she said she had, he replied angrily that she must be lying because she wouldn't still be around otherwise. We have plenty of other explanations besides revenge, though. An obvious one was that Al-Khizuran missed the power she wielded before her son had her shut out of court, and his death was the only way she could regain it. Another one was that she grew worried about Al-Rashid after Al-Hadi's threats grew more serious, and figured the best thing she could do was protect one son by killing the other. As for the how, some say that she caused his illness with a slow-acting poison, while others admit that the illness was natural, but that she then bribed one of the servant girls to suffocate him with a pillow while he was in this helpless state. I am not convinced by any of these accounts, and can't say I'm surprised at the hostility towards Al-Khaizuran found in the oral material. The very idea of a woman in control was anathema to social convention at the time, so she makes for an obvious target, especially since she became influential again immediately after Al-Hadi's passing. It's notable how none of our sources think to blame Harun al-Rashid for his brother's sudden death, even though he was the one who benefited the most. A powerful woman like Al-Khaizuran was simply too effective a lightning rod for the Ummah's darkest suspicions. One night, after he'd been in prison for a few months, a servant appeared before Yahya ibn Khalid al-Barmaki and told him that the lady, that is Al-Khaizuran, would like a word. Yahya must have thought it was a test, for he protested that he did not know what she could possibly want from him. 
Then, he figured, it was one last cruelty from his captor. He said his final prayers and prepared to go to his death. To his surprise, Al-Khaizuran really had summoned him. She told him of Al-Hadi's recent demise and the need to write to Al-Rashid for him to return to succeed his late brother. Yahya could hardly believe his ears. He never thought he would live another day as a free man, and now he was being told that his charge was about to become caliph. He had good reason to wonder at his fortune. When Al-Hadi's advisors first realized the seriousness of the caliph's illness, they worried about Yahya's reprisals should he return to power, and they plotted to have him killed in prison. The only thing that stopped them was their fear of Al-Hadi's wrath should he recover and learn that they had acted without his consent. Having narrowly escaped his death, Yahya followed Al-Khaizuran's instructions and he wrote to Al-Rashid, telling him it was finally safe for him to come back home. So there you have it, the short and tumultuous reign of Musa al-Hadi. He became caliph at too young an age and died before anyone had a chance to get used to him. Both these facts really played into how he was remembered in Arab history. Since he was so young, others in his administration get most of the credit for events during his time in charge, stuff like tamping out of the Hashemite rebellion in Mecca and others in the distant provinces. The brevity of his reign meant that no firm impressions of his character could be established, and everything said about his time as caliph was stuffed into a short period, leading to more confusion than insight. Finally, his protracted and unsuccessful struggle against al-Rashid provided the Abbasid with an early warning on the peril of having two designated successors to the caliph. No lessons were learnt from this dangerous episode, however, and we will witness the disastrous consequences for ourselves before too long. But until then, we have the long and much-vaunted reign of the celebrated Harun al-Rashid to get through. Join me next time so we can get started with it together, here on The Caliphs, The Rise and Fall of Arab Power.